0: right now our friends at princeton university press are having a remarkable site-wide sale you can get 50 percent off books including ebooks and audiobooks with the code 50, 50 at checkout until may 31. you can save some real money on princeton university press books i encourage you to go there and check it out welcome to the new books network hello everyone and welcome back to new books in african-american studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nakazi Oates, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Twitty. He is a culinary historian and author of the James Beard Award-winning The Cooking Gene, a journey through African-American culinary history in the Old South. Recently, he was selected as one of the National Geographic Society's Emerging Explorers. We'll be talking about his newest book, Rice, which is part of the Savor the South cookbook series published by the University of North Carolina Press. Michael Twitty, welcome to New Books.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So
0: I want to begin with you and your background just a bit. You are a culinary historian, and that primarily means that you... Engage history through food. Tell me what drew you to food as an object of study.
1: So, um, I really began to hear um, about food and history when I was watching. Um, you know, when we when I was growing up, there was no Food Network, there was no Cooking Channel, um, etc. There was there was really only Saturday afternoon and weekend. Uh, cooking programs on pbs and one of the elements that really got me was you know they would always do a little bit of food history culinary history um there is a slight distinction but we don't have time to go into that razor-thin distinction um but there was you know um, there would always be details about how the romans ate you know the the frugal gourmet or Nellie dupree or joe nathan or uh, martin yen or even um, the comedian um, Justin Wilson, who was not actually um, Cajun, would talk about these little elements, and I found it fascinating because you really couldn't find it, you know, most places. And then during the eighties, we had um, these massive trivia books for kids, or at least you know, people people consider trivia. And I, I'll never forget that one of them was about you know food, and it was it was about food, nutrition, and cooking, all, of the, all of the above. A little, you know, mishmash. You never knew what you were going to get from an author. It would be A little bit of everything. And I'll never forget, they had a picture of Thomas Jefferson, well, assumed to be Thomas Jefferson. They labeled it Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, you know, they, they've honed in on the red hair and the ponytail, um, and which is funny because most men didn't actually have their real hair back then. Um, but the long red ponytail and, you know, he looks, you know, permanently, you know. Monumented in thirty, let's say twenty-five to thirty-five years of age, and he has something of an apron on over his, you know, official sort of like uh, kerchief and 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 shirt, and he's carrying a, a, a silver dome bell thing of food to his guests. He was like this, you know, metrosexual gourmet. They depicted him as. And something about that picture just didn't work with me. And I remember, you know, getting the book from the school library, taking on my grandmother and my mother and father and saying, you know, what's up with this? And my grandmother immediately was like, no, that man didn't make his own food. That that man didn't cook his own food. And he certainly didn't run around looking like that. And, And I was like, you know, I don't know what it was in my gut that said, that's not appropriate. That's not real. But that's what we got, right? We we got the image of black people were given certain foods and didn't participate in the flow of you know human history when it came to food, even though we're the first <laughs> um, re- fully realized Homo sapiens um, with, with all that goes with that. And and black people certainly didn't in, didn't do anything more than with southern food other than cook it and with the machines of it. So very early on, you know, I'm, I have this fascination with. How human beings shape their world, their culture through their cuisine and how the cuisine shapes the culture. And at the same point in time, I'm noticing that people who look like me just aren't included in the story. Other than maybe, maybe, maybe the ongoing story stories about um, Dr. George Washington Carver making like 800,000 different uses. I'm exaggerating. Or peanuts and sweet potatoes. But that was about it. That's all that that was allowed us. And that's only one aspect of a much larger story.
0: So Michael, in one of your talks, you said that most of your life, you lived at the intersections of the illusion of race and the reality of food. Tell me more about those intersections and how you were able to overcome those forces, or should I just say, have you overcome those forces?
1: So they're not really something that we can overcome. They're something we have endure with. I mean, um, race as pathology, as as racism, is something that we live with, like a chronic illness in this culture. And that's because the hierarchies are built in. That's why it's very difficult for people to lie to me and say that there's no systemic racism uh, when it's already part of the system. And race... Is an illusion. Race is, you know, we are one human race. Unless I hate it when people get on the news or some program and they talk about people of another race because of my race, you know, honestly, um, we are almost genetically identical. But it doesn't mean that people don't create arbitrary um, groups and hierarchies based on the genetic gamble, um, the natural gamble that is phenotype, what you look like, right? Um, how how the different genes in you express themselves and your genotype. But ethnotype is definitely arbitrary. And so that's what happens. You are in between these spaces as a person of color in particular. And it's, you know, part of the colonial history and part of the history of enslavement and part of the history of um, exploration was. Using what people ate to judge them, to, to mark them as civilized or uncivilized, and that's a history that we still dwell in and exist in. Or categorizing people by, you know, what food they eat, um, you know, saying things about them, or using one particular example, extreme example, um, uh, to judge them or to mark them as something like something other than normal. So, for example, um, people never tire of fried chicken jokes and watermelon jokes with Black people. But they also have used those food examples, you know, to, to sort of try to shame Black people out of, number one, foods that everybody enjoys no matter what they are, and mm-hmm. foods that are very popular. So instead of saying, look at these two little examples of this this huge amount of um influence on the human um, path to having cuisines and food and everything. It's aren't these people so embarrassing and dumb Mm. or, you know, people of, you know, um, Hispanic descent in the Americas with, with, with beans, right. Beaners or using, you know, eating dog, which is actually not as common as people think um, for East Asians to show, the sinisterness, um, the backwardness, despite the fact that East Asia has been one of the pinnacles of human civilization, right? Um, so you're not an Aztec or Maya person with fantastic, you know, mathematical skills. You're not an African with ingenuity and entrepreneurship. You're not an East Asian person whose culture and civilization has, you know, if we're not for several turns, would have outwitted the West many times over you're just a savage. And so that call, that cloud is really um, powerful because it marks us to this day. And it's a conversation that we have to have. And so if in my work in particular, there is this idea that African-American culture, music, food, whatever, dance, I mean, I talk a lot about appropriation, and I talk a lot about um, about you know people. You know, well, we used to call it back in the old days. We used to call it uh, covering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but eventually people people go, "Why are you so upset? Why are you?" It's it's all it. You know, it's just def, you know cultural diffusion. That's what you're. No, this is this is what people do. They steal from you. It's like the recent TikTok situation, right? Um, they have no problem rebranding and stealing and then calling you stupid or slutty or whatever they're going to call you when you twerk. Not even understanding that that has nothing, This it, it is not rooted in, 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 in sexual expression. It, it's, 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 it's something totally different, but they never, they never think to ask these questions and they make those questions irrelevant. So for me to, to go back to the source, you know, mother Africa and her and her many you know, many leaf family tree is important because my goal is to get through all that, cut through all that stereotype and and accusation is to have us have access to our own source code of what our culture is, where it comes from, who we are, and who we will be. And once you have access to the source code, people cannot ape you. People can't try to even attempt to do what you do. Because you ask the question, where where were your chains? Hmm. Where were you at the bottom of the ocean, in the Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean and beyond? You know, what What, had, what was your name changed to? That Those questions go hand in hand with, before you even go, why is this white person doing whatever? I have no problem people doing our culture. They don't look like us. But one thing I will always say is, they will never own the source code. And that may seem like petty nationalism on our part, but it's really protects you, because the honest to God's truth is, is that, you know, other people protect their culture and their worldview and their artistic productions so that you know that you may try to do them. You may be inspired by them. You may even do them very well, which ain't never going to be them. Mm-hmm. And for a for people that constantly needs empowerment, to their own cultural production, we desperately need something that we can we can only claim, and it's not even about ownership; it's about development and having agency.
0: And to that point about agency, on the other side, um, I think about justice, right? And um, in a talk you gave you also use the language of culinary justice i mm-hmm. want to know if you could explain and describe what that is for our listeners
1: sure culinary justice is something that i coined to pair up with food justice food justice really just refers to um access sustainable access to nutritious and healthy food as a human right you know to to be sustained through clean Food And I know and I know that's very political saying the word clean, but I don't mean it in the sense that maybe um, first world people do. I just mean basic, clean, healthy food, you know, that's not dirty, that's not second or third rate, that is the best of the land that you're in and beyond. Culinary justice. Okay. So you need... To understand that food and culinary stuff is not—they're not always simultaneously um, intelligible, right? So, culinary refers to our, the culture of cooking, cuisines, food. Just as food, you can eat a, anybody can eat a raw carrot. What you turn that carrot into is your cuisine, your culture, or someone else's cuisine or culture that you're you're engaging with. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about protecting the cuisine the culture of food that people create and what that adds up to is that culinary justice means that we honor the source it means that we support the empowering um, of people who are or, who are oppressed and marginalized with their food um, which could mean anything from from um, Writing about it, cooking it, selling it, being entrepreneurs of growing certain foods associated with different cultures, um, specific cultures. Excuse me. It, it really just it really just goes to um, having access to the power of platform and privilege that others do mm. as they navigate food. Mm. Um, you know, we don't. No, no one's having to argue for the um cultural you know authenticity validity of champagne or prosciutto right mm-hmm. because those are culturally and legally protected foods um they also happen to be many one of many um foods in western europe that have that cultural protection designation that are that are you, know, you can't make, just make any kind of wine any kind of place that you want to or have any kind of preserved meat or cheese any kind of place that you want to because there are, there are boundaries that have been set by you know, legal and cultural authorities to say this is from this place and this is why it is from this place and we want to protect the people who are in that place making the food who are the masters of that cooking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if that is the case, if there are designated protections for these things, what have we you know what have we done to protect the food of the african diaspora and the african atlantic the, the food of the descendants of the people who were exiled against their will who have in who have in many ways um invented the foods of the americas
0: hmm.
1: you know feijoada in brazil most cristianos and mofongo in the spanish caribbean um you know peas and rice and and Beans and rice and Riz Jean Jean and Griot and picnic and bammy and um, Jerk Chicken and all the rest. You know, Callaloo, all the rest. And then, of course, the panoply of foods in the American South. I mean, I just picked up a book the other night ago. It was I hadn't picked up in a long time. Housekeeping in Old Virginia. And the cover is literally an enslaved um, family making dinner for the big house. Yeah. And then when you when you hit them with that and you say, well, wait a minute, why'd y'all always put us on the cover in the book and, you know, to write recipes in dialect? Well, you know, it really wasn't really centered on you. And I fought those arguments on paper before. Yeah. Um, I thought about that the other day ago. I was like, well, I, someone has not talked to me in years because I, I laid them out after they tried to take Edna Lewis off the pedestal that she had just been given posthumously. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, why is it so important for you to, you know, say, well, Edna Lewis made mainly British recipes. It's not about Africa. And that's how they, that's the tone that they use. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, wait a minute, but you all seeded your cooking to black people for several centuries. And if you know anything about cooking, you know, that, once other groups or other people get their hands on the food, the recipes are going to change. Mm-hmm. The ideas about food, how the food is served, the purpose, the meaning is going to change. It's not going to stay the same. It's not static. It's dynamic. And if we know that, and if you know that, and if you know that you really don't eat the same way that your people would have eaten in England, mm-hmm. then the identity problem is not with us, it's with you. Mm-hmm. So all that's, all that's so important because... You know, as we go forward in, in a, more, a more increasingly global world, and you can see right now in this unique moment that a lot of people simply are not, they think they can handle a global world. They cannot. I mean, we're sitting here having this conversation as people in in our own country grumble over making sure the rest of the world has a vaccine. They want the rest of the world's culture They want the rest of the world's uh, natural resources. What they don't seem to want is the rest of the world to survive. Mm. And the same thing goes for our nation with a nation that is Black people in America. They desperately want us to go make medals for them. They desperately want our dances. They desperately want our food. What they don't want is us to be able to vote and be able to be healthy and use the pathologies that have been created in slavery in terms of our health to, to use that against us in voting lines. I, it's, it's, it's sinister to me. And that's why if I just take that one little area about food and I go deep on it, right, mm-hmm. and I use it to unravel sort of these systemic issues and talk about our history and name and claim the contributions and successes of our ancestors and lay a path for the, for the you know, the greatness and excellence of our children, that's the least I can do.
0: And as you say that, and the project to maintain the access to our source code and to protect the foods that we create, you know, um, that represents the African diaspora in the field that thinks they understand and delineates what is Blackness. I want to attend just for a moment the, um, the struggles and the toll it takes on oneself. So... I think publicly we don't, we don't talk enough about, um, the moments of struggle and trepidation and mm-hmm. insecurities. Um, and I just want to know, um, throughout your career, can you reflect on a moment that you had, um, insecurities or doubt for, um, the project that you are pursuing? But then also could you pair that with, moments of, or a moment of reassurance for this is what you need to do.
1: Sure. I I really feel that people need to understand this is not easy and it wouldn't be easy if everything, if if all the money was great and all the opportunities kept flowing in, which they would thank God after many, many years, they do. You are still in the, in the court of the ancestors. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people, people really want to believe it's all good, it's all sweet. None of the answers is nice and sweet. Mm. I want to be very clear about this. the um, The thing I can, the thing I, I, I humorously connected to, <clears throat> is the movie Ghost. Okay, mm. where Whoopi Goldberg plays a medium, and there's a point where she goes from being a fake medium to uh, to having. That you know, pineal gland open, and all of a sudden, everybody, she can perceive the the spirits and the dead, and her, her every space around her becomes in and you know awaiting an entrepôt for for the other side. And not everybody who's waiting in line to talk to you, to see you, to move through you is nice. Mm. How could they be? They were victims of a unique, a, a uniquely a. a, a a cultural genocide, an American Holocaust. So there's a lot of dark forces there too. I mean, I, I hate to I hate to be real real about it, but that's what it is. So you have to. So when you when you encounter people's stories and you feel their energy, and you hear things that are just traumatic and terrifying, I know that for a lot of us nowadays, the thing is to like not engage, and to run away from it. But I think that's what got us our amnesia. And so part of the difficulty in my work is engaging with that. And what a friend of mine asked me, a white friend from the South asked me on the day ago, he's also gay. He said to me, are you, are, are you taking time to like do some self-care and healing and, you know, backing away? And I said, thank you for the reminder because, it, you know, I was telling him I was looking at these, looking at Jamaica and turning my eyes to you know, not just culture of food, but like the culture of enslaved and work and their songs and their religion. He said, "Well, are you you, you doing what you got to do. You're doing the other work." And I said, "Thank you for the reminder. That's a big thing. Um, is opening, knowing how to open and close those gates. Those of those of us who are metaphysical know exactly what I'm talking about. That's one element. The other element is just the feeling that I am, you know, my board of directors is the ancestors. Mm-hmm. And as long as I'm telling their stories and doing it and amplifying their names and." Who they are and what they brought and what they the vibrations they continue to bring. I'm good. And I have to remember sometimes that you know, sometimes I'll get very negative um, responses from people. Some people are some people are, are very clueless. They don't understand why I'm wearing historic interpreter's clothes. I'm not a reenactor, I'm an interpreter. I'm a 21st century person and third person. Was educating you about the cooking of the past by actually doing it, but I, But it would be silly for me to run, run up around in a historic kitchen in an open hearth setting wearing contemporary clothes that, that actually are fl- more flammable. Mm-hmm. But, but you know because you don't mean look like a quote-unquote slave, people don't understand. The clothing that you see people wearing at museums if they're Black does not make them an enslaved person. In fact, the material culture and existence of enslaved people... Did, was not congruous with their status as chattel. That's, that, that seems inconceivable for people to imagine, but the reason why I say that is because they are used to the the post-enslavement idea that in order to enforce and reinforce the idea of Black folks' inferiority, we have to make them look inferior and feel inferior and feel mm-hmm. poor. And that's not that's the how I went during slavery. <clears throat> you and I, you and I both know that there were people who were enslaved, and there were also free people of color, who you know, used used clothing, used attire, used their skills to reinforce the idea that I am not three, you know, you know, three quarter, uh, three fifths of a human being. I'm a full human being, <laughs> and whether you like it or not, you will respect me. There's so many examples of that, and that's very inspiring to me. <clears throat> but I have to educate people all the time that no, I don't do these things to, to 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 shame us or or bring us back to some something awful. I do these things because I don't want us to forget where we come from, and I don't want us to forget our ancestors. Um, you know, people, you know, I I had a long time struggle because I had to, um, you know, put a pause in my education. And people, people, some people said, you know, one time I remember I was, uh, the Washington Post article was really beautiful about me. And then they did a review, and the guy was awful. He just, he called me. He basically said that I was, he, he said, okay, so this guy is uh, has a big body. He's fat. What the hell does it have to do with, with how smart or intelligent my arguments are? Then it went on to just, you know, talk about how, oh, he dropped out of college. I, I did no such thing. I didn't know such thing. I didn't have the means to finish uh, last few credits, which were which were also kind of difficult. And they had nothing to do with my major and minor course load. And I just I just I, why, why, why do I have to explain those things to other people? Mm-hmm. Why do why why do other people get 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 have the ability to just waltz around and do what they want to do? Why, why do I get put to that test of, well, did you check off these boxes? Should we listen to you? Mm. Why should we care who you are? Mm. When you see other colleagues who don't look like you, you know, just have free range to gallivant wherever they want and claim whatever they want. And you have to, you have to, you know, support every argument you make 10 times, tenfold because, you know, you're black and you just can't be believed. The way I'm talking to you right now is the result of many years of me suppressing, despite being outspoken, suppressing the urge to call these people out for what they're doing. Because, you know, I think in the past couple years, as you and I have both seen, you know, um, now we, now we, now we can say, no, I wasn't treated that way in the restaurant or no, the cops didn't pull me over because I had a, you know, a little automobile, whatever. No, this is, this is what systemic racism looks like. And this is why there's, there's such an urge to suppress Black women and Black men and Black non-binary and trans folk who are writing and doing the work. Because it's been so comfortable for the food world to be predominantly white. Mm-hmm. It's been so comfortable for academic work around food to be practiced by people who are predominantly white because they got to tell stories that had nothing to do with us except for every now and then when 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 one of their own would do something and all of a sudden it becomes you know newsworthy because it's not us and and I, and I I'm I want to let people know that you cannot let you have to work very hard to not let other people's ish get to you to not let other people's issues and their their darkness um Stain your power. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. to be committed to your truth. And you have to be willing to, to do this for the long fight. You know, um, when you're younger, a mosquito bite really hurts. When you're older, you may not even see it, mm-hmm. but you'll take precautions not to get another mosquito bite. That's why I like it. Mm-hmm. You have to have that inner, inner, strong core that says these people cannot get to a deeper part of me. I can't let them because I have bigger things to do. And so when people tell me, Michael, I mean, sometimes it'll fade in the background, unfortunately, but I'm telling you right now that there are people who tell me, Hey, Michael, you know, you, this is your work. You're, you know, how you write about spirituality has been influ- you know, has brought me back to things I haven't really dealt since I was younger, since I was a child, or that recipe really impressed my mother-in-law or someone will. Someone said to me one time made me cry. She talked about how, her she took her grandfather back to Louisiana, when he what he left in when he was like six or seven, eight, nine, ten years old, whatever. And she said that you know she's learning her family history, as an African American of Creole descent. You know his his people were from the country, but they left because of Jim Crow and they went to L.A. like many people from Louisiana did. And so you hear these stories, you know, there's one woman who was from Bosnia and she said, You're very brave. And I said, I don't know if I'm brave at all. And she said, you know, I mean, she said, literally said, I'm from Bosnia. I know how identity can be. And and all I could think was, I'm not as sure as hell, and I'd still believe this. I'm sure as hell that is as brave or whatever is her, strong as her. But the very fact that she would even make that sort of like leap in comparison and put me in her ilk or some or her ilk adjacent. You know, I hear from so many people positive things about what my work has done for them and with them, or that something I said in a book or something I said in an article or talk reminded them of something someone said to them a long time ago that unlocked the keys to their heritage or um, gave them hope. And and that's the thing you should, that we should focus on. You know, people have tried to take me down and call me a coon and everything else because they don't understand my work. I've never said, let's skip on back to the old days. I've never said... This is why this is why the right is right. I'm a progressive. I'm a liberal, and you would think that I was this this god awful, you know, um, ster- you know, stereotype brought back from the past to haunt to haunt our people. And here I am taking chefs to Africa, for their first trips to Africa. I'm paying for right out of my pocket and raising money for them. But you know, uh, sometimes my brother, it, it's it's very it's very um, disconcerting that on social media and Twitter especially, I've had art- articles or statements, tweets about me that have been negative have gone like wildfire. And tweets about my, you know, being on Waffles and Mochi, Waffles and Mochi Michelle Obama show, or at James Beard, F- far less engagement when something positive happens than when, something, when, when somebody wants to be negative about me It's because they don't like me and they're jealous. Mm-hmm. Or they just wanna or they don't understand what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. instead of asking me and engaging with me, they make assumptions because I'm wearing eighteenth century clothing, mm-hmm. and um I'm gonna try my best to focus more on the positives and block the negatives and just hit that black button and delete button. Mm-hmm. But it's so hard when you're a public figure, especially mm-hmm. if you're black, especially if you're gay, especially if you are um, not heteronormative. And then, especially if you are, um, overweight, stocky fat, whatever word you choose to describe me, because there's, there's a level of, um, people just, people aren't just, people aren't just about letting you be and be a human being on your own terms. Mm -hmm. And it's very sad.
0: I want to turn to um, rice, and can you tell me how this project came to be? And you know what I appreciate about the, this this cookbook is that it is at once both a history of rice, but then also is a cookbook. So how did this project come to you?
1: So <laughs> I mean, flat honest with you, that you know, I had, I had wanted to do something with UNC Press for a long time which is not you know it's not a, it's not a, it's not a remunerative thing it, it's really actually academic press and it's it's very um it's very well known and it's also um, connected with um, a lot of authors and books about southern food and cooking mm-hmm. and that includes um the savor the south series which is a you know 20 plus book series about different staple ingredients in the South and recipes around them. Mm-hmm. Um, so rice is the last book for that series. And I was offered that after many years of just kind of like saying, let me in the game. Mm-hmm. And Elaine, Elaine Mason, the editor said, well, this seems perfect that, you know, we would offer this to you if you're willing to do it. And it took longer than I wanted it to, because I just have at the same time that I'm trying to work on this book, the cooking gene happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the aftermath of the cooking gene happens and I got to do that in this little book, you know, it, didn't, it doesn't seem like much. Right. It seems like I should be able to do that in like a couple of months. But that's not how people don't understand. That's not how book writing works. Book writing mm-hmm. is not you know sitting inspired and just la, 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 la. And today I'm going to write. Some days you have such creative constipation, it's not funny. Mm-hmm. And when you do when you do a cookbook, you know, I had to test most of the recipes or work through them. And some of them still didn't come out right when I'm, when I'm, when I, when they got published. I'm like, how did that happen? You know, I hate to admit that, but it's true. Um, don't worry. Most of them are good. Don't worry. Um, but some of them I've noticed like, oh, ouch, that was the wrong measurement or I didn't do that. That always happens with books. There's no, there's no getting around it. There's not one book that's published. That doesn't have a typo or a mistake. And for me, you know, by the time that I got offered this project, I'd been thinking about rice I've been thinking about the role that Ains ingredients play in telling us about our stories. I mean, I'm a Mende descendant, a Temne descendant, a Fula descendant from Sierra Leone. I have my Sierra Leonean citizenship. Mm -hmm. I'm a passport carrier of Sierra Leone as well as the United States. And it's because that I I did that work and I went to Salon, I went to Sierra Leone. And I saw, you know, rice fields and I saw the rice in Senegal and other spaces in Gambia. And the pounding with the mortar and pestle, and I want people to understand something. It's not just a comfort food that you put on the table or something you were just familiar with. It's actually a very deep part of your DNA. And I mean, uh, the women that I come from were rice growers for you know thousands of years. And you know, when we just to be able to say that, you know, with with, with some with a definitive sense of this is where I'm located. This is the pride I have in it. Is so much more rewarding than constantly being on this identity hamster wheel that America mm-hmm. expects Black people to be on. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking of ourselves is not really the ideal America. All the time we're, we're American, American is when they want us to die or makes make make them dance or you know have a have a vicarious moment when we shoot a ball. I mean, I, I know how this game works. And then the other side is you ain't really African. Well, who, who the hell determines that? You know, I, I'm so sorry, but as as much as contemporary Africa is assimilating into Western culture and as much as other Black communities have had to do the same push-pull, the people of the African Atlantic are not orphans of Africa. And by the way, we are not wards of the West either. We are our own sovereign people because we were never asked. Slave shit and beyond. That rice that we cultivated in Haiti and um, uh, Brazil and the United States, what became the United States, um, from the low country of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, and North Carolina, to lower Mississippi, Mississippi Valley and Louisiana, that became the signature part of Gullah Geechee and low country and Louisiana and Creole and Cajun cuisine. That, that tells massive stories about us. I wanted to capture all of that all of that in this last volume, you know, a lot of the cookbooks, they're very, they're very straightforward. the, The most of the info was in the head notes. I wanted the head notes and the introduction to let people understand and know that when we write the story, the contours are different. When we, when we write the story, the packaging isn't quite the same. And when we write the story, you will know where we come from. You know, that's a, that's, that's one of my favorite proverbs in West Africa. If you sit down, sit down and eat with me, Mm -hmm. you will know who I am.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the gender roles in cultivating rice. Um, And you say that women took a primary role in um, producing rice and cultivating rice. Can you say more about that?
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, one of the things that is very important people to realize is that, um, you know, in West Africa, there are gender roles when it comes to labor. These gender roles are not established by, you know, in the West, it's like, okay, women are less strong at this and men are, that's not how it works. Um, (laughs) Trust me when I say pounding fufu and going collecting firewood and, and drawing water. All of these things, all of these things are heavy, intensive, manual labor. And it's, it's, it's based on tradition. It's based on kind of a, a, a system of reciprocity. You do this and I do that. And then we will go do this together. So when it comes to rice and other crops, typically the men will clear the field, the women will, will and burn them. The women will plant or the men will shape the the um, the waterworks that allow, you know, allow for the flooding and draining of fields of fresh water. Women will plant. Women will weed. Um, Men and women will harvest together and women will process the rice by winnowing it with the bat with the fanner baskets Mm -hmm. and also by pounding it. Um, as I said in the Mandinka village in in Sierra Leone, um, Fulani, Mende and Tende village, Malitu. So it even has the uh, the onomatopoeia of the the coming down in a mortar. And because of this, I really do believe that that slave traders knew a lot more about the system, as suggested by Doctor Edith Fields Black and by Judith Carney. They knew a lot more about the system than. Some of the traditional historians are willing to give them credit for you know to them it's like well this is the tenuous claim that africans um were you know at the at the forefront of introducing rice cultivation in the americas first the first thing I need to make sure everybody knows is that rice is indigenous to africa as well as indigenous to asia and then asian rice although important doesn't show up until the time of the arabs and the portuguese the dutch but the rice that was already being grown in Africa it had been grown there for thousands of years. I mean, as as far back as a wild collected crop, probably about 4,000, 5,000 years. As a domestic crop, about 3,500. And that means the whole time somebody was manipulating this plant, settling and growing it. And it was grown along the, the Niger River, uh, the Senegal River, Gambia River, and beyond. And all the tributaries that lead to them. And then beyond as people moved across the face of West Africa. As kingdoms wax and wane. And so when these women were brought over, you notice that when you ask somebody, well, you're Mindy and Timne, what, what side, when you did your African ancestry, you did another kind of ancestry program, which side? They'll almost always say the, the, the maternal side. And what that tells you is that these women were targeted and they, they, were, they were wanted because they knew how to pound and fan the rice. And every African ethnic group had familiarity with rice, okay? Uh, Some were yam people, some were millet and sorghum people. Some were already cassava and corn people. And so that's, so these women were literally brought over en masse to, you know, what became the United States between um, 1750 and the beginning of the, the Revolutionary War, 1775 or so. I mean, thousands upon thousands. And, of course, they're going be to the, be the ones who marry Afro-Creole men, people who were born here, um, people who were from Congo, people who were from what is now um, Nigeria, Ghana, um, and even all the way to Mozambique. But predominantly these women who were the rice growers were from a very specific part of West Africa, the rice coast, and um they were they were monumental. Now the men the men who are clearing the land clear more land than was used to build the pyramids at Giza. The, the the scar on the earth from the rice plantations is still is still visible from outer space. It's this is this is to deal with the parasites and the snakes and the alligators and pestilence, the bugs would have been almost, almost inconceivable, not to mention the heat, you know? So when people talk about, Oh, slavery wasn't that bad, or it was so long ago, uh, 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 these traumas exist in us, not to mention the fact that, that, you know, we're still trying to figure out the relationship between the sickle cell trait and these people who work in the rice fields, you know, so you don't even think about that, right? Like a lot of us in my family, there's a lot of carriers. I mean, why? I mean, it was in my grandmother's system. You know, this was, this is what people who, you know, lived in, you know, had lived in mangrove swamps and lived in tidal creeks and lived in rice paddies for centuries. This is, this is another this is a weird sort of biological you know, incident that that gave some people an advantage over others. And that was, I mean, I remember, I remember that reading the words in one of the earliest genealogy popular books about how like sickle cell may tie you to May, And it's still, we're still trying to figure out all these different relationships with biology, with, with culture, et cetera, but it may tie you to these people. I am so like, Oh, that's interesting. And then it, turned out to be very real in my family, my family lineage, but this actually did have a connection and there were some issues there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm the reason why I think I'm so obsessed with this whole matter of our Africanisms and our connections and our, and, and, and how they connect with other places in the African Atlantic is just because, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, we weren't supposed to have a heritage, man. We weren't supposed to have this conversation. We were supposed to be denuded of a surname and a real name, and we were supposed to be still supposed to be on somebody's cotton field or sugarcane field, or rice field or tobacco field, or indigo field, as we speak, in 2021. We were never supposed to be literate, educated, free. And every day I wake up with that notion that I am living my ancestors' best fantasy by just by being able to read and write my own name, to know where they came from, to have that conversation, to to, 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 to sense that kind of power just by being able to, to define my own existence and our own existence. It's just, it's, 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 it's a miracle every single day.
0: Absolutely is. Um, the low country cultivated Carolina Gold. Could you share with me how this happened?
1: Sure. Um, so the verdict is still out on Carolina Gold. We know that it's an Asian variety of rice. However, um one of it it has a lot of different genetic similarities to other um Rice varieties, and one of them mm. is one from Ghana. So <clears throat> it could have been, it could have gotten to South Carolina and been developed there in many different ways. But I think that I think that the more likely scenario is that you have um, varieties of rice that are being cultivated in the continent that are that are coming over. That are being that are being experimented with, that are being that are being um, bred, developed, tested. Like Carolina Gold was, it was in in the in the husk is a really beautiful um, golden variety, and and it's white rice. I should let everybody know it's not it's not a you know especially pale or I mean especially a golden or you know exuberant mm-hmm. variety of rice. It's just that. In the husket look in the field it looks a certain way and it was also a money, good money maker um, there were other varieties of rice as well, but that was the one that was considered um, you know and to this day considered a boutique ingredient um, but I mean people were people were literally uh, cultivating so many tons of rice you can't imagine. I mean the largest rice the largest excuse me the largest slaveholder. Um, in American history, was a rice planter. I mean, you can't uh, having like a thousand plus people on a plantation.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. Can, can, can you imagine the 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 lines, of the families, and how long they went back, uh, and the stories that were that were there, and the history, and just the fact that these people made tons. Like when I say tons, I'm not exaggerating. Like literally hundreds of tons of rice. I mean. How, I mean, how much labor does that take? In the cooking gene, one of the things that I did was, I, you know, I calculated how many pounds of cotton people on the people who were in the plantations that my ancestors were enslaved on, how many pounds they picked. Hmm. You know, what does it mean to have to grow this much tobacco? What does that actually look like? So that people would understand that their ancestors didn't just do, it wasn't just work. It was, it was torture and it was drudgery. And it was painful and it took them away from all the other things that you know people in traditional africa do which is learning mm. spiritual development um character development wisdom training you know people forget we lost a hundred plus different deep ways to be mm. us you know and and that rice field took so much energy out of us and at the same point in time, and here's the kicker, it is it helps ironically preserve mm. a lot of who we are, not just the material culture—the mortar and pestle and the fan basket—but the, which the food itself, right? Um, Hop and John, mm. cow peas and rice, which is you know drawn out of chebu Nyebe from from Senegal, rice mm-hmm. and black eye peas, right? And then you take it to Louisiana, jambalaya congre. Jambalaya congre is the same thing as hop and john back in the past. And then it's red rice, of course, which I've talked a lot about. You know, um, one of my favorite dishes, which was uh, you know named Spanish rice or even mulatto rice in the Deep South. You know, again that annihilation. Now, if you go to Nigeria, going to take the same dish, they say, "Oh, this is like an American version of jollof rice." Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there are jollof rice versions in Senegal and Gambia, um, in the north of Chebuj'in, fish and rice with the red with the tomato-based rice, in the south of Benin and also in Gambia, which is jollof rice. And then in Sa- Salon in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and then over to Ghana and Nigeria and Cameroon. But also Mexico and Brazil. That same rice you call it. Mexican rice is nothing but their version of the same food because enslaved people from Senegambia were also brought to Veracruz. So, feijoada, the natural dish of Brazil, is rice and black beans. Watch this. Rice and beans with barbecue and collard greens and hot sauce. Hmm. And grits. <laughs> like, okay. All right. <laughs> Message received. And, and they love their okra and they love their garlic and they love their this and that. And, you know, it's funny because if you read these Brazilian cookbooks, one of them had the nerve to say, after years of people saying, this is slave food, this is food that came out of the plantations of Brazil, one was like, well, that's just a myth. It's it's for all Bra- the Portuguese mm-hmm. and all Brazilians. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The, the same kind of whitewash mm-hmm. is a different Perfect. different language. Perfect. Rice and beans in Haiti, right, becomes the rice and beans in Louisiana. Not the, not the black, not the... Peas, the cow peas and rice, but the kidney red kidney beans and other beans and rice. Then with guandules in Puerto Rico and beyond, like the pigeon peas, which came from Africa. Then rice and peas and peas and rice, and pickup rice in the Caribbean. And then we haven't even started on rice as an accompaniment to okra soup, rice as a accompaniment to ground to peanut soup. Rice with oyster soup, rice with okra soup, rice rice with okra, rice with okra and black eyed peas, Mm. rice with crawfish etouffee, rice and jambalaya. You know, you can go on, 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 on. Rice pilau, pilaf. So all those things, little dishes from South Carolina and Georgia, et cetera, pilau. So basically rice cooked with something else, which is not what I just described. It's very specific to chicken or shrimp or tomato or whatever. So there's like, and then there's rice waffles and there's rice pan, rice cakes, like pancakes. And then there's rice bread. So you have this entire thing rice pudding, rice this from Texas to Maryland to Missouri to Florida and then up the East Coast and beyond a whole tradition, a whole cuisine based on. The African Atlantic engaging with Native America and Europe around this mm-hmm. thing called rice.
0: As you name all the iterations of the dishes and the, the central ingredient of rice, um, I want you to talk about your process of producing the cookbook. And I was struck by um, in um, a passage in the cooking gene that I want to to read to you. To um, In it, you write, I bring all of this into the historical kitchen with me, politics and race, sexuality and spirituality, memory, brokenness, repair, reclamation and reconciliation and anger. I bring in the moments of my childhood and went sometimes at the feelings of mourning and pain I get from them. Moments of shame and failure, moments of incredible love In affection. Before these were my grandma's, my grandmother's hands. I was trained to use my hands to measure as accurately as possible dry ingredients to this day. I can give you any teaspoon or tablespoon or cup measurement you want by just holding my hands in a certain way. I wonder, do you bring all of those elements, all of those emotions and the memories that you have of your grandmother and the physicality of using your hands as you produce a cookbook and the recipes.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's exhausting, especially my mother's presence. My mother was my greatest food teacher, culinary teacher. And it's exhausting because it's, it's like a, your brain goes on this like memory lane tour of like all your all your triumphs and traumas. And, you know, I, I, I try to remind people it's it's not all nostalgia. It's not all fun. Sometimes it's 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 shitty. Excuse my language. It's like it's not that fun. And sometimes it's it's draining because you want to make them proud. You want to live up to what they taught you. You want to live up to the things that they instilled in you. And then I just began to realize that, you know, I had been looking for like some grand moment, some stories, some narrative, some empowerment. And I'm like, well, you did have that through cooking in the kitchen. It, you know, it, nobody may have said this, that to you in other spaces, but they certainly did in the kitchen. Like, I, I know the exact moment when my mom, a blessed memory, was like, okay you take the reins or you should do this or I, I, I got you I trust you and that was as close as I got growing up to like you know you know you're a man now you're this now and that's very important because those, those are the moments where you like okay now I've progressed now I've learned now I have now I have the free reign to do things that I want to do it's also you know black tradition I think also we're very um <laughs> how did I say this we don't give up titles mm-hmm. or honorifics easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, we don't give them yes. out. You know what I'm saying? It's like you, you, you don't just you. You think you've mm-hmm. grown is not the same right. thing as you grown, right? So you have so so passing on the reins is so important, and and, and to remember that we come from cultures where. That exact moment was was always ceremonial. You were a man now. You're a woman now, and you walk back into the village after having been dead, right? Because you were, you had a symbolic death as a child, and then you go back into the back into your community, and everybody looks at you anew in ways they never did. We, we've, you know, I know that there are programs that give children, young people, rites of passage, and to me, that's 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 important because. That I think that that sort of like link isn't there. So for me, writing these cookbooks is another form of rites of passage. For me, right, doing this work because now it's my it's my turn and my opportunity and my responsibility to get it right and also you know demonstrate that I have learned the things that that my mother used to always say the phrase, "You have to have integrity in the kitchen, Michael." I you know I even right now it's very emotional and stirring to think about how far I've come. That was another thing that my mother used to always, you know, reinforce to me that, you know, getting through life and growing and learning your, your mistakes and your failures don't matter as much when you've overcome them and you become a better person and you've matured and then, you know, you can move on to the next level and then even be better than that. And, um, those are the things that my mother instilled in me. And um, um, there were things that my father taught me. You know, i I'll never forget my barbecue with my daddy. And, um, and my father's still here, by the way. And and my father pat me in the back and say, oh, you did real good, son. That's beautiful. That's exactly how I wanted to come out and look. And you did all that by yourself and you, re- you know. And um, I never, I never threw a ball. <laughs> I never did those other things, but the look in my father's eye, and the way that his his arms felt around me when saying, "Okay, you did, you done good." The way my mother when she looked at me and she said, "That's she." I remember she called. I, you know how you you somebody passes away, and all of a sudden, all the things that you wish you have—the recordings, the voicemails, everything you wish—and you and you know, I never forget the one the time my mother said she she left me a voice on my on my older phones, probably in some recycle heat by now. And she said, she called me and she said, Michael, that barbecue you made me was so good. I slapped myself, you know? And I was just like, I played that thing back like eight times. And she was right there on the other side of the County I was in, but I just had to hear it. And now I wish I had it because to me, you know, um, that's what drives me in this work. And it, as and people don't realize, it's not just about producing something that comforts or, Excites the palate of other people. It's it's healing, therapeutic work, you know. I it's it's just like the whole the whole project of revitalizing African American foodways is about healing. It's about regeneration. It's about revitalization. It's about renewal. It's about every single heirloom plant and heritage breed animal and foraged wild food and the and the dishes and the utensils and the stories around them. And, and the memory and what Tony Morrison called rememory, re-memory. All those things go into this, man. Everything, everything goes into this. These are all the tools. You know, what was that? Who was it? Gordon Parks. You know, title of his book is The Choice of Weapons. His weapon was the camera. And my choice of weapons is everything from the hot comb that, that was owned by my great-grandmother, grandmother, and mother that now is on the doorpost of my kitchen like a mezizah. To um the my own Mali my own, my own motor and pestle that I use to make the seasoning for a lot of my dishes, to just the the idea that um, I have something to uphold. I have responsibility to help uphold the integrity of my mother's kitchen. and that's why I write. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh my gosh.
0: Um, Michael, so before we end, um, what are some of your upcoming projects?
1: Kosher Soul is looming. It's been looming for quite some time. Um, it's about my relationship with food as a Black Jewish person, my relationship with um, Jewish food from around the world, and how Jewish food is also Black food, and how Black food is also Jewish food. I mean, Judaism is the religious culture of the Jewish people, not the totality of the Jews. And that's very important for people who are outside of our community to remember. That it's not just about faith. A lot of Jews in America are not religious or practicing or, or secular. But Jewish peoplehood is still very important. And Jewish peoplehood is not one color or one thing. Jewish peoplehood, um, is Ashkenazi, Sephardic, Mizrahi. It's Ethiopian. It's Indian. It's Chinese. It's it's Persian. It's Latin American. It's also African, and African diaspora. Um. And I'm asking people to make that leap of leap of understanding because, you know, I, th- I think the weirdness comes in when someone is fully willing to accept uh, African Atlantic or African, contemporary African, Muslim or Christian black person, but not a Jewish person with all sorts of weird assumptions about what that means. And I'm just like, wait a minute, you realize that we weren't Baptists past 200 plus years, right? But we've been Jewish and black as well as, of course, traditional African religions, etc. For thousands of years, <laughs> this is you know, it's I, just, I mean, I just gave myself the liberty to question that. People get weird. I'm just like, okay, but I'm also tying it to how you know, white people who have commit who have converted from Protestant religion to Judaism from the South make food to Black Muslim communities in food, which I found really fascinating. It's it's interesting how these white Folks from the South who were raised Protestant, who are now Jewish, African-American Muslim families from different backgrounds, and African-American Jewish folks share a lot of the same elements in the kitchen. Not just the dietary laws, but how they insist on bringing to life the food of the people and the food that they come from. I mean, it's like, I mean, you can easily get subsumed in other people's stuff. But the fact that a lot, that almost every single one of my interviewees and friends and family who are also Jewish came to talk about like, okay, this is what we do in the kitchen, how I make my kosher soul food, et cetera. There's this insistence on, yes, I will keep these traditions as a Jew, but also I want to make it known that our family is is Jewish, but we're Southern and Black and Jewish. Uh, So for me you know, this is exciting because, you know, all these flashpoints that we went through the past administration made it very difficult to finish this book because obviously this book would have not, I don't think this book would have had the same punch had it been written before the summer of BLM, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, or, you know, act this, this hellacious relationship with race and identity that has really gone to the next level. I mean, I don't know about you, but January sixth gonna be on my list for the next the rest of my life because I won't let them forget that you know what nah y'all went buck wild and you never you never paid the same price that we would have paid and we and 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 our revolution is 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 important and it's it has to be multi pronged I guess that's the last thing I kind of want to say is that we can't be ashamed of that. The revolution has to be intellectual. It also has to be financial, economic. I, I do believe in boycotts. I do believe in enforcing these 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 cats to do the right thing about voting and beyond. I do also believe in a culinary revolution. You know, can we? And i I'm seeing it. And that's the part that I guess I guess that I, I don't admit to myself, but I'm I'm proud of. You know, I'm part of a I'm part of a bigger network of of chefs and culinary people that are black that are just like yeah we're going to reference berbere from Ethiopia, and we're going to talk about guandules, we're talking about mafongo, and we're going to talk about um, chitlins, and we're going to talk about this, and we're gonna we're gonna blend we're gonna draw we have this wide body of sauces and sources and seeds and spices. And we have, we have this common language in the African Atlantic and Sub Saharan Africa, and they were going in the Black world, period. And we're going to use that to make our cooking sing in a way no one else's can. And we're going to own that source code, and we're going to acknowledge our ancestors. I was so proud of Matthew Ravert, the chef farmer who was representing the United States of Slow Food in Italy. He, where um, I've also taught with Soul Slow Food several times, uh, several years. And he, he begins his cookbook by saying, my roots are in Ghana and Cameroon, and I'm Gullah Geechee. And my great, great, great grandfather, Jupiter Gillian, had, born in 1812, had all this land, and that's where we farm. That's exactly what I want people to say and hear and do, is that, you know, we have roots, we're established, and we have something to pass down to the next generations. I mean, it's, it's just, to me, it's, that's the fire right there. That's the, that's the power. And that's the revolution because we're taking. Right now, the goal, of course, is to denude us of the memory of enslavement and what that meant, you know, um, and taking away our ancestors from us. And I, 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 you know, now I feel like now more than ever, the work that I'm doing and other many others are doing has the, the the appropriate salience that it needs to win the battle. And that's what I'm here for the fight. And indeed, you are a fighter and
0: uh, an important fighter when it comes to um, accessing the source code and um, discussing the centrality of um, African-Americans' contribution to gastronomics and um, foodways and um, our traditions that are maintained and passed down. Michael, it was so good to talk with you. Michael Twitty is a culinary historian a James Beard winner, and a National Geographic Society's Emerging Explorer. He is the author of Rice, which is part of the Savor the South cookbook series published by the University of North Carolina Press. Michael, thank you so much for our fascinating and terrific conversation.
1: Thank you so much.